0: Welcome to Curated Conversations from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, bringing you the best events each week from the world's number one defense and national security think tank. To explore the hundreds of events we host each year, visit us at CSIS.org.
1: Good afternoon. Welcome to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Welcome as well to our viewers online. My name is Jacob Kurtzer. I'm the acting director of the humanitarian agenda here at CSIS. The Humanitarian Agenda is a project that CSS that seeks to leverage the expertise of our scholars and programs to shine a light on the most pressing humanitarian issues in the world today and offer policy solutions. Uh, before we begin, I'd like to direct everyone's attention to our emergency exits, as part of our safety and security plan, and encourage you also to take this opportunity to turn your phones to mute. Um, I want to acknowledge, before we begin, the partnership that our program has with the U.S. Agency for International Development's Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance, whose support allows us to put on events such as today's discussion. We have short time today, so I'll be brief. All of us here today are keenly aware of the immense human suffering taking place in Idlib and across Syria right now. Families and individuals have been forced into multiple displacements, uh, with targeted attacks ongoing on innocent civilians and on hospitals and clinics, all of which challenges our notions of shared humanity. The events and escalations of violence this past weekend only increase the urgency of finding durable, meaning solutions for the humanitarian challenges faced by the civilian population of Syria. I have to say that while we're very grateful to um, uh, our speaker today for joining us and for hosting and for having this event today, I find it deeply distressing and disappointing that after so many years we continue to be hosting events on the same topic, highlighting the same challenges, and we continue to find ourselves asking what we can do and what can be done. Um, So without any further ado, I'd like to now turn it over to one of our regular partners uh, in the humanitarian agenda, John Alterman. Altman is the Senior Vice President, uh, holds the Zbigniew Brzezinski Chair in Global Security and Geostrategy, and is the Director of the Middle East Program here at CSIS, and he'll introduce our speaker today. Thank you, Dr. Altman.
2: Thank you very much, Jake, and and thanks to the Humanitarian Agenda, thanks to USAID for the support of these kinds of programs. The horrors of Idlib are plain for those who wish to know them. Almost a million people, many of them children, are stranded along a border and trapped between armies. Idlib province has long been a desperate place, doubling its population since the war broke out as Syrians sought refuge from fighting. Now, three million Syrians are huddled there suffering from cold and lacking water, sanitation, and medical care. This has been occurring outside of the public layer, not because it's unknowable, but because the public is uninterested. Seized by coronavirus, a presidential campaign, a shaky economy, and rising populist sentiment in Europe, the United States, and elsewhere, the crisis in Idlib gets little attention. That's what brings us here. And we're here to speak to a forceful humanitarian whose organization has been doing tremendous work to try to relieve some of the suffering in Idlib. David Miliband is president and CEO of the International Rescue Committee, where he oversees the agency's humanitarian relief operations in more than 40 war-affected countries and its refugee and resettlement assistance programs in over 20 U.S. cities. Under Miliband's leadership, the IRC has expanded its ability to rapidly respond to humanitarian crises and to meet the needs of an unprecedented number of people uprooted by conflict, war, and disaster. The organization is implementing an ambitious global strategy to bring clear outcomes, strong evidence, and systematic research to the humanitarian programs through collaborative partnerships with the public and private sectors. Uh, Before he began this important work, he did other important work. From 2007 to 2010, he was the Foreign Secretary of the United Kingdom. He graduated from Oxford in 1987 with a first class honors degree in PPE, philosophy, politics, and economics, got a master's in political science in 1989 for MIT, which he he attended as a Kennedy scholar. His accomplishments have earned him a reputation in former President Bill Clinton's words as one of the ablest, most creative public servants of our time, and as an effective and passionate advocate for the world's uprooted and poor people. I'm pleased to introduce to
0: you Mr. David Miliband. Thank you very much, uh, John. Thank you, Jake. Uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, uh, ambassadors, excellencies. Um, also, thank you to USAID, who are your partner, but also our uh, partner. Uh, the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance Give from the rule of international law around uh, the world, and it loses when those laws are undermined. F- fourth and final point, which I, uh, I hope doesn't sound Self-interested, coming from a European, and I'm happy to be a Brit who still refers to himself as a European. Uh, the uh, I still believe that um, America has a strong interest in its democratic allies in Europe being sustained in their strength and in their stability, and there is no question that already with the dangers that posed from migration flows from Libya, which is a something very much on European policymakers' minds, they also have to be concerned about a further unplanned, unregulated, disorganized uh, flow of people from the Middle East as well. And so for that reason, I would say there's an American interest in that. And in a world where 113 countries have suffered reductions in democratic freedom over the last 13 years, it's even more important that Europe and America stand together, and so I would say that that would be the fourth part of my argument. Now, you'll have to tell me whether that will win any followers in uh, across the US, but that's the best I can do.
2: Um, let me ask you a British question, not a European question. It's notable that, that Britain doesn't really have, uh, is not at the forefront of diplomacy on this issue. as. As a Briton, do you feel that's a mistake for British interests? Is there a way that, that, that Britain might demonstrate uh, the, the, the role of upholding a, a moral structure that the United States is, is not playing with? Well, right I, would
0: hope, I would hope so. I mean, it, it grieves me that I can make a speech about how there's a key meeting being an on again, off again meeting, a, a Macron, Merkel, Putin, Erdogan meeting, and no one, I've heard no clamor over the last week since the meeting was announced of of people saying, no, 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 there's no chance that meeting will succeed unless you invite Boris Johnson as well. I mean, there is just a real absence uh, there. And it's it's striking to me uh, that a country which is still a member of the Security Council, um, whose diplomats make strong statements at the Security Council, um, has not got political leadership that wants to engage in this kind of geopolitical question i don't want to overclaim for what the uk can do uh, but i am deeply concerned uh, that the era of brexit will be an era of uh, british isolation and that's i think not good for britain and modestly i would suggest it's not good for the wider world either
3: and 70% of the world's population in one way or another will experience this so it isn't something that the refugees are likely to escape. Um, And this is clearly something that involves people all around the refugee areas. Has there been any thinking about this and any way to prepare for it? And secondly, is there any long shot here where the devastation of perhaps 10% uh, mortality in this kind of a situation uh, could lead uh, to some kind of ceasefire. We've seen this in other humanitarian tragedies in the past, short term sometimes, sometimes long term, sometimes leading to peace conversations. Uh, it's just an idea at this point, but no tragedy I think in one way or another should be allowed to happen without thinking through the full range and would love to hear your comments. Mm-hmm.
0: Well look, um, Tom, Ambassador Pickering if you really want to know um, the way out of the Syria mess, you, you should listen to him. He should probably have been giving the lecture, not me, given your extraordinary service and experience and ideas. Uh, just on coronavirus, uh, I'd say two things. First of all, by some uh, stroke of luck, the places where we do most of our work across Africa and the Middle East, Um, to some extent in South Asia as well, mercifully have been, relatively speaking, spared so far in this. So it's worth being aware uh, of that. Secondly, things could easily go very, 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 very bad indeed, very quickly. Because if you think about the spread, the rate of spread in societies where there are advanced health systems, where there is advanced public health information, where there are extensive, where it's easy to access hygiene measures, just think of the speed of spread amongst populations where those, don't, those things don't exist, where there isn't the public health infrastructure, where the idea of, it's gone out of in my mind, um, when you put something, quarantine, quarantine where, where the idea of quarantine is absurd in any kind of mass um, movement of people, whether IDPs or uh, refugees. And here, it's worth going back to that statistic. One in every 105 people on the planet has been displaced by war and conflict at the moment. 30 million refugees and asylum seekers, 40 million internally displaced. And uh, maybe 60% of them are in urban areas. So you are see, of the refugees, sorry. So you, you're absolutely right to draw attention to it. We're